You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Uh, my name's Stan. I am the youth pastor here, and I've got opportunity to preach this morning. And like Mike pointed out, hey, there's no notes today, and you're wondering why? Well, it was BBS this week, this week. so uh, I had a lot of things going on. So you get what you get this morning. Um, we're going to see how this goes. We are going to be in Psalm 77. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, if you need a Bible this morning, um, you can raise your hand right now, and an usher will bring you one, hopefully. And I see no people moving, so maybe not. Um, we're going strong already. All right, so those Bibles, though, you can just leave them in your seat when you're done, and uh, we'll pick them up and deal with them later. If you're someone who doesn't own a Bible and would like a Bible, we have those available for you at the welcome desk, ones that haven't been touched by a million people who have come through the church, and so those are yours to keep and and do what you want with. Hopefully, read. Uh, That's the the hope there. But we are going to be in Psalm 77 today. Psalm 77 is part of a section of scripture called the wisdom literature, and these are the how-to books of the Bible. And so you have Proverbs, how to make good decisions, uh, Job, how to suffer, Song of Solomon, how to love, Ecclesiastes, how to have an eternal perspective, and then Psalms, how to worship. And when you think of that word worship, you probably think singing, but uh, worship is more than that. Worship, as the Bible defines it, is us responding to the thing that we value most, And Christian worship is valuing God so much that he's the only thing we're responding to, that he is the thing that we have at the center of our lives, the center of our hearts, the most important thing to us. And so everything we do is a response to that. And so um, because the Psalms are the how-to books, they give us examples of how to worship God, how to relate to him, how to praise him, how to interact with him, and how to struggle with him. And the psalm that we have today for our our topic, it has a a little nuance about it that's a little different. So you've got the psalms, they're mostly written by David, and then the next big chunk of them is written by a guy named Asaph, and Asaph does this a lot. And he's included this word selah into the psalms, uh, into his sections of the psalms. And so what selah means is it means pause, it means take a moment, meditate. It closes one unit of thought, and before moving on to the next unit of thought, it says, hey, you need to really process this. You need to have really come to conclusions about what I've just said first, and then let's go on to the next thing. And so what we're going to do today is going to be a little different. We're going to approach the psalm exactly how Asaph wanted it to. So we'll have moments where we, we read what he says, and we'll uh, understand that, and we'll do some stuff with that. And then we'll take a Selah moment where we really process that, and then we'll move on to the next thing. And so we'll break those up with some music. And so just for your own logistics, how this is going to work, you've got the blank page, uh, which is for if I say anything interesting, but I know what I'm going to say, and it's not all that interesting. So you have that. And then you've got the blank card. And the blank card, I'm going to have you write down some different things and do some different things. And this is for your interaction. And today, we're going for more of an experience. We're going to work through some things with God and understand our relationship with God. So more important than the notes is that you have the blank cards. If you don't have one of those, an usher, raise your hand, an usher can bring you one of those. And you'll need a pen, and you'll be writing some things down. And and that's what we're going to do today. So like I said, Psalm 77, we are in verses 1 through 3. It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul 
refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. And so where we find Asaph in his opening lines is he is frustrated with God. His feelings towards God is that he is angry with him. He is frustrated. He is upset. He is not handling things well. It talks about him uh, groaning and moaning towards him. And the, the description there is that it's this uh, aggressive, guttural, just uh, reaction towards, uh, towards God. He is just upset. And he is working through these feelings towards God that, you know, normally we talk about, you know, uh, a, a relationship with God is life-giving and it's a blessing, all this kind of stuff. And Asaph is saying, no, no, my relationship with God right now is life-taking. It is sapping the energy away from me because I'm so upset at him and I'm so frustrated with him and I'm not coping well. And what we want to do with this and the thing that we want to ask ourselves is what is our feeling towards God? How are we relating to God? What do we think about him? What do we feel towards him? And when we have these times where we're frustrated or we're upset or we are angry or whatever it might be, how do we work through that? And so are you walking in this morning angry at God? saying, why are you putting me through this? Why is this my burden to bear? Why is everyone else getting a pass except for me? Why is it, when is it my turn to get a break? Um, are you walking in this morning just full of doubt? And you're saying, do you really hear me? Do you really love me? Do you really plan on answering my prayers? Do you really even know what's going on or how I'm struggling? And you're doubting whether God is even there for you. Are you walking in just worn out? And you're thinking, you know, thrive and be excited. I'm, I'm just trying to survive. Like, I've barely got my head above water. I'm just trying to make it to the end of each day and hope that I've still got enough energy to get up in the morning. You know, maybe that's what you're walking in with. Or maybe you're walking in just feeling numb and empty. Um, next Sunday will be a year since my mom died. And that season of life that immediately followed, I would say that my prevailing feeling about myself was just hollow. You're, you feel like a shell. You just feel empty. You're existing through a lot of things, but you're not really in any of those things. Those are the th- that's the feeling that happens after a cancer diagnosis or a death or a breakup or whatever it might be. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. And we want to ask ourselves, what are we feeling towards God? And then what do we do with those feelings towards God? And these feelings, they might, just, they might be the general trajectory of your life. They might be the way that your life is headed and you've always been doubting or you've always been angry with God or you've always been upset about something or you've always kind of had this prevailing feeling of doubt or unable to really comprehend how, how God could be, say he's one way and yet your life looks this way. Or they could just be an aspect of your life right now. You know, if you've been in the church a long time, you probably say, well, yes, I love God, but man, I am really frustrated that this keeps happening. You know, I'm really frustrated that I can't seem to get ahead. You know, I can't seem, you know, we're trying to save up for the emergency step of our baby steps and then move on to our next step. And every time we get step one done, then we have an emergency and then we're set back again. Or, you know, we're always trying to get, you know, out of an apartment into a home and there's always a setback and that's why we can never get into a home. Or we are stuck in this dead end job or we are always having problems with our kids. You know, whatever it might be. You might, as a whole, know that you love God but there's something going on in your life that is frustrating you. And you're saying, God, why aren't you doing something about this? Why aren't you making progress? Why aren't you answering prayers? Are you really there? Do you really care? Do you hear me? And so what we're going to do in our first Selah moment, and I don't want you to write anything yet. We're going to do that uh, when the music starts playing. But I want you to complete this sentence. I'm blank with God because. I'm angry with God because I just lost my job. 
I'm upset with God because he seems to love everybody else except for me. I'm tired of God because every time I pray, it seems like it gets me nowhere. You know, whatever it might be. And, you know, I've listed a lot of dramatic examples. It doesn't have to be a very dramatic thing. If you're just upset that you drive a 1982 Honda Civic and you're like, God, I, I just want a car that's newer than the youth pastor. You know, like, that's all I'm looking for in life. You know, like, let's move on up in the, uh, you know, the social uh, world. If that's where you're at, that's fine. Like, it doesn't have to be this huge thing. It just has to be an honest thing. It has to be what you really feel towards him, where you're really at in your heart of hearts and where you actually are. Not, we're not looking for church answers this morning. We're looking for real answers. We're looking for honest answers. Because here's what you need to know. These feelings towards God are normal. Asaph is a real guy with real circumstances. He didn't just sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to write a frustrating poem today and see what happens with it. He was dealing with some real stuff, and we don't know what that real stuff was, but we know that he was a real person, and these words that he's written are motivated by a real struggle. And he is inspired by God to write those things down. And then God places it in the how-to section of scripture and says, this is how I want my people to relate to me. This is how I want them to interact with me. I want them to come in those honest feelings. I want them to bring those things to me and take them to me, and then I want to work with them there. There's nothing wrong with the feelings. In fact, it's normal to have the feelings, and it's expected that you would have the feelings. Every major biblical figure has these types of feelings and these moments with God, and so it's expected. But the only way you can work past that is if you're actually honest. You know, God meets us in, us in our honesty and desperation and can do something with our honesty and desperation. But if you're just going to come here and pretend, God says, I can't do anything with that. Come back when you're ready to have a real relationship. If you're upset at me, bring it to me. See how I can heal it. See how I can change your perspective. See how I can do something with that. But only come to me when you're ready to really tell me what you feel. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, the music is going to play. And I'd like for you to write uh, on your card on one side um, the completion to this sentence. And after uh, enough time, we'll, we'll jump in again to the psalm and see where Asaph takes us. Where we find Asaph again is in verses 4 through 9. It says this, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. I said, let me, rem- let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in, compassion, or in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. And so where Asaph goes after acknowledging his feeling of, towards God, is he says, I need an explanation for why my life looks the way that it looks. I need to have something I can hold on to and say, this is why, this is what's going on. And it's written down in English in questions, but what's going on here poetically in Hebrew is these questions are the statements of how Asaph feels towards God. He is saying, God no longer loves him. God has spurned him. God has turned his back on him. He's used up all of his forgiveness. God has ceased his promises of goodness towards him. God has shut up his compassion against him. And when you read between the lines of what Asaph is really saying here, is he's saying his view of God, his concept of God, is a view of God that desires to show anger over grace or display wrath and justice over mercy and kindness. You know, he has a view of God that 
can withhold blessing and desires to be withholding blessing. And that's what's happening to him right now. God could, has all this blessing to give, and yet he's withholding it all from Asaph. Um, and he has this view of God that ultimately says, I could get so sinful that God could turn his back on me. And that's what's happening here. He believes that God has given up his forgiveness. You know, he's no longer going to do that with Asaph. He's just exhausted all of that. And what we want to do now is ask, what is our view of God? What do we really think about him? Do we think that God has his capacity to turn his back on us? That we could, uh, that that's what's happening to us now. That the circumstance you're in is because God has turned his back on you. Do we believe that God is up in heaven and he's just counting your good deeds and your bad deeds? You know, he's like Santa Claus, you know, making a list, checking in twice, finding out who's naughty or nice, except the naughty people, instead of not getting any presents, they go to hell. You know, like that's the view of God that we have, that he's just up there or he's just, you know, looking at your life and waiting for you to just, you know, step one inch over the line and saying, all right, as soon as they do that, then I'm going to get them. You know, the ground's going to open up or lightning or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, do we believe that he loves other people more than he loves us or that God's love is not equal to everybody, you know, and that he loves you less than he loves other people? Do we believe that we can do so much wrong that he would want nothing to do with us? That you, there's a limit and you've used that limit, you know, and now too bad. You're just out of luck. Do we believe that he either no longer hears our prayers or refuses to hear them or hears them and, and laughs at them and just they fall on deaf ears and he says, I'm not going to do anything about that. I got more important stuff to deal with. You know, what you're praying to me about is not important to me. Is that what we think about God? We need to ask ourselves, what do we really think about him? And not the church answer, the real answer, the answer that's at the heart level, at a guttural level saying, the reason for my circumstance right now is this. That's what we're going to answer in our next Selah moment. I don't want you to write yet. You know, we're going to write when the music starts. But I want you to ask yourself, what's your explanation for why you're in? Why you're in what you're in? Do you believe that you are here where you're at right now because God doesn't love you? Or he's not listening to your prayers? Or he's not uh, doing anything? Or he's not powerful enough? Or whatever it might be. And even if you know the church answer and you know what you should believe, that doesn't matter right now. We need the real answer. We want to eventually make the church answer the real answer on our hearts, and that's where Asaph is going to take us. But before we can get to that place, we have to acknowledge where we're at already. We have to move from that place of honesty and get met in that place of honesty, and then we can grow out of that honesty into a new perspective, a perspective that Asaph will take us into the next section. So as the music plays, I want you to answer this question on the other side of your card. We want to enter back into the psalm, and if you're still writing, that's okay. You can just listen along. It says this in verses 11 through 15. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might amongst the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people and the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. And so where Asaph takes us now is he says, I need to recognize that my previous concept of God, my previous thoughts about him are flawed. They're inaccurate. They're not really what God is like. It's a view of him that I've created about him, and I've been frustrated out of that view. But it's not really what God is like. And so what I need to know is I need to know what God actually is. I need to know how he relates to his people. I need to know how he actually is interacting with me. And the place that he turns to, he says, let me think about how God has worked with his people. Because 
my version of God is just created out of my head. I am a sinful being and I've created this, this false notion about him. But God's work, how he relates to people, how I see him actually do things, that's a true picture of him. That's a real picture of him. And I can gather true thoughts and worthy thoughts about him if I look to those. And so that's what we want to do now. We want to understand what God is really like. And um, probably if you're looking at your, what you wrote down on your card, the picture of God that you've probably created for yourself and that you have uh, viewed about him is a view of God that puts the desire to be angry and the desire to give out justice and the desire to punish sin and to uh, give out wrath is more more prevalent in his mind than his desire to give out mercy and kindness and love. And you have a view of God that is, gives out blessing begrudgingly and it has to be coaxed out of him and he's waiting to catch you when you do things wrong and there's never anything good enough for him that you can do and you're always uh, just you're working a rat race with him. And the picture of God in the Bible though is much different than that. When Adam and Eve sin and they bring sin into the world and they bring corruption into the world and their relationship with God is now separated, God says, I'm going to fix this. They sinned against me. They're the aggressors here. They're the evil ones. They're the criminals in this situation. But I'm going to fix this for them. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to redeem this situation. And he starts to do that in Genesis, uh, most specifically, or uh, kind of the plan starts moving along a little bit more uh, prevalently with this guy named Abram, who eventually gets named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you a land to call your own. I'm going to give you descendants that are going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. And I am going to use you and your lineage to bless all of humanity. All of the world, all the creation will all be blessed in you. And the most important part about this promise is that it's a promise that I'm going to uphold and I'm going to have a covenant with you that I will make this happen regardless of what you, Abraham, do or what your descendants do. No matter how much they fail or how much you fail or how many mistakes you guys make, I will accomplish this. I will make sure that this happens. And a lot of Genesis is kind of concerned with the uh, descendants aspect of that, that promise. And there's this one story that, you know, God is interacting with Abraham. They've got this good relationship. And what happens is that Abraham and his nephew Lot are living in a land and they've kind of outgrown the land. Like the land can't support both of them. And so they decide to separate and Lot decides to move into Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, not the most righteous city in the world. You know, not a lot of praising of Jesus happening there. You know, it's a lot more sin. You know, so whatever. And Abraham stays where he is. And God says, the cry of the wickedness of those cities comes out to him. And now he has to punish those cities. And it's time to send disaster there because their sin is so great. But he says, I want to see what Abraham thinks of this. I'm going to involve him in this process. I want to see what he does as he hears what I'm about to do. And Abraham says, God, okay, well, if you wipe out that city and you wipe out everyone in the city, regardless of what they're like, what if you are, end up wiping out 50 righteous people along with all the wicked people? What about that? Would you be willing to relent if we could find 50 righteous people in the city and spare everyone for the sake of those 50 righteous people not losing their life? And God says, yeah, I would do that. If we can find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And Abraham goes, eh, probably not 50 available. How about 45? <laughs> is that close enough? And God says, yeah, we can do 45. And Abraham says, well, as long as we're already going down, uh, you know, 40 is pretty close to 50 and we can round up, right? Like, is that good enough? And God's like, yeah, we can do 40. You know, but, but he's not begrudging like I did it. He's like, yes, I will spare the city for 40. And then Abraham's like, 
well, what about 30? And you, at this point, you're starting to think, all right, God's a little angry. He's talking about sending lightning at places. Maybe not the best to be standing next to Abraham. But God's like, no, yeah, I will spare the city for 30. 25, yes, 25. What about all the way down to 10? And God says, yes, if you could find me 10 people that are righteous people, I would spare that city. I desire to show grace and mercy so much that I'm willing to endure with an entire city full of evil people if you can find me just 10 righteous people. And the story is to illustrate for us that dichotomy, how much God desires to show his goodness and his grace and his mercy over his anger and his justice and his wrath. Does he have those? Yes, absolutely. But his chief desire is to show the merciful things. But the story leaves us wanting because the story leaves us at 10 and we're wondering how low could it have gone? You know, would God have spared the city for just one righteous person? But then the second question is, where would we even find that person? Where would there be someone's righteousness that was worthy enough that we could say that person alone makes it worth enduring the rest of this wickedness? And the answer to that question, the answer to really knowing what is the extent that God wants to show his grace and mercy over his wrath is seen in Jesus. It's seen in the cross. Jesus is the one righteous person. And it's not that he's just coming for a city and he's not just coming to passively exist so a city exists. He's coming, to, he's coming for the whole world and not just the world that he's in, the world of the past and the world of the future. Every human being that ever existed, Jesus is coming to deal with the sins of them. He's coming to be the righteous person that will then, his righteousness is so great, the sins will be put on him and he will be nailed to the cross as penalty for them. But when he comes on the other side of the cross, when he comes out of the tomb, he comes back. And all that's left is still his righteousness. His righteousness is of such a wonderful quality that all the sins of the world and all the sins of that haven't even happened yet are dealt with. They're gone. And then what happens is it goes a step beyond that because then we, in our state of giving our sin to Jesus, he gives us back his righteousness. We call this imputation. Then what's going on here is that everything that Jesus had now becomes ours. Everything that Jesus had his righteousness becomes ours. And now when God sees us, all he sees us as is holy. All he sees us as is Jesus. And what this means for us is that this is the picture of what God's love is like. This is how far he's willing to go. And as you look deeper and deeper into that cross picture and what happens on the cross, you start to realize what God's love is like. And the deeper you go, you start to see this is beyond anything I can comprehend. You'll never exhaust that love. You'll never have to worry that God isn't loving towards you or that he doesn't care about you because the cross shows, no, he absolutely is those things. And they're beyond what you could even know. And what we have to do then is become used to that. We have to learn to realize that and live in that and become that. And everything that's true about Jesus is now true about us. And so what we're going to do for our next Selah moment is we're going to take communion together. And what communion is, is a time of remembering what Jesus did for us. It's we eat, his, uh, we eat bread to remind us, us of his body broken for us. We uh, drink juice to remind us of his blood spilt for us. And what happens is in this time, what we're going to realize is we're going to take our cards that we wrote on, and we're going to take them with us to get communion. And you'll notice that these are these little uh, planters around kind of where the communion stations are and where the people will be. And I want you to leave the card in the planter as you take your communion elements. Because what I want you to realize is this, what's in the card, what's your past belief about God, isn't real. And it's been dealt with. And what God is giving you is a real picture of him shown in the cross. And when you take the bread and you take the cup back with you, you see this is what you really are. This is what you really have. 
This is what your relationship with God is like. And as you do that, the frustrations will go away. They will start to get healed because you're getting a real picture of God instead of a false picture of God. And so the way that we are going to do this logistically, my um, communion people are going to start going around the room. Um, Communion is something that is only for believers, but there's no reason why you can't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now and take communion with us. And I'm going to ask you guys to um, go whenever you're ready, after you've processed and, and done what you've needed to do. But hold on to your, your elements, and we'll take them together, because communion is a time of community as well. And so we want to all partake of our, our eating and drinking together. Our communion reading comes out of 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 11. This is verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took from the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Where we meet Asaph one more time, he's got some parting thoughts for us. We are in verses 16 through 20. It says this, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, The clouds poured out water, and the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Yet your way was through the sea, and your path through the great waters, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So where he takes us and where he ends it is he says, God is big. God is powerful. God can do crazy, amazing things. His, the nature that we see is just a, a glimpse of his power. But his workings are oftentimes unseen. They're hard to discern what's going on. It's hard to know how he's really working. You know, he's getting you to the other side, but you're not seeing how he's getting you there. And he leaves us with this reminder that God shepherds his people. That in the times of frustration, in the times of doubt, in the times of anger, in the times of hollowness, in the times of being worn out, what you need to know is that God is shepherding you. God is taking care of you. God is treating you as he does his sheep. What does the shepherd do? He takes them where they need to go. He provides for them. He gives them their needs. And the goal of the shepherd is to make the sheep totally and absolutely reliant on him. You know, it's to make them so trusting of the shepherd that they would never think of wandering off. And that is what God is in the business of doing with us. The circumstances that we face, you know, Bible teaches not everything that happens to us is caused by God, but everything that happens to us is promised to be used by God to create a deeper trust and love of him. God is trying to cultivate those things in us. And we call that deep trust of him faith. The opposite of faith in the Bible's version is sight. That's what we want to be. We want to be sight people. God wants us to be faith people. We want to know the 10-year plan. We want to know all the twists and turns. We want to know why, what's happening. We want to know what the next step is and then 10 steps after that. We want to know exactly where everything is going. And God's not interested in making us sight people because sight people don't rely on him. God's making, interested in making us faith people. 
Faith people have to rely on him because that's all they have. And God is in the business of cultivating that in your life. And the circumstances that you face, while they might not be pleasant, they are going to have that result if you choose to make them have that result. And just to illustrate what God's shepherding is like, I've got a story to share with you guys. Um, so this is story time with Stan now. You can just kind of put your stuff away and, and listen along. Uh, this is for all the kids, you know. Um, so this is from Chronicles of Narnia. If you aren't familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, kind of what's going on here is C.S. Lewis has written these books to illustrate Christian principles to his, it was originally his children, and they grew up too fast, so his grandchildren, you know. And the Christian, uh, the Christ figure in the stories is a lion named Aslan. And so whenever you see Aslan, you know that this is supposed to teach me about Christ. And my favorite is called A Horse and His Boy. You know, and this story takes place during The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, kind of in between the battle and then when they go back home. And the story is about this boy named Shasta. And Shasta has grown up as a slave of a fisherman. And he's not been treated well. He's been treated pretty poorly. And he's never known who his parents were. And one day, this soldier shows up to the house. And the soldier says, hey, I'd like to buy your slave off you. And the soldier's like, yeah, or the fisherman's like, yeah, let's, let's sell the kid. I don't have any value in him. I don't need him. Um, and Shasta overhears all this. And so he decides to go outside and just grieve his situation and be sad about what's going on in his life. And he knows that where he's headed next with the soldier is even worse than what he's currently in. And as he's doing this, the soldier's horse comes up to him. And the soldier's horse is not a normal horse. It's a Narnian horse. It can talk, and it can think, and it can make decisions. And it says to him, the horse's name is Bree, it says to him, hey, why don't you hop on my back, and let's escape together. A uh, you know, wild horse running on its own, that's going to draw some attention. And a little boy running on its own, that's going to draw some attention. But together, we can get away. And so that's what they decide to do, and they set off. And as they're uh, going on their journey, they get attacked by a lion, and this other uh, girl, Erevis, and her horse, Win, who's also a Narnian horse, who are also runaways, they also get attacked by the same set of lions, and they get brought together. And now they're traveling together, and they spend some time, uh, uh, Shasta has to spend some time in the tombs, and he has to, uh, uh, he hears the jackals uh, howling at him, and a cat comes and comforts him, but something else keeps the jackals away from him. And as they're going on their journey, what ends up happening is that they hear that this nation named Tashban is going to attack this other nation named Arkenland, which is the border nation between those two, that one and Narnia. And so they hear that this, this secret attack is about to happen, and they decide we need to warn the people in Arkenland. We need to do something about this. And so they make that their goal, that while they're trying to escape, we need to get to Arkenland and help the people prepare for this battle. And what happens is that they're going along and it looks like they're not going to make it and the horses are getting run out and they're all so tired and then another lion attack happens and the horses, not wanting to be eaten by a lion, get some adrenaline going and they're afraid and they rush off and they reach this hermit and at the hermit's house, everyone's injured except for Shasta and they're all too worn out to go on and so Shasta has to run on his own up to the castle and he does that and he warns King Loon and the... Uh, King Loon and his people get their army together and they start to ride out to battle and they give Shasta a horse to ride on. But Shasta has always ridden Bree and Bree's done all the work, so he doesn't know how to ride the horse and he ends up getting left behind. And where he finds himself is now in a forest, in the fog, not knowing what's going to happen to him in between two armies who are about to go to battle. And he's upset. And that's where we'll pick up. It says, I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone else except for me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erevis and Bree and Wynne are all snug as anything at that old hermit. 
Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabidash arrived, but I was left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that a tear began to roll down his cheek. What put a stop to this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice that the breathing was so gradual that he really had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries, and he bit his lip in terror. And now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he'd only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of that, there came, a, there came suddenly a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be his imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and his unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Jasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after straining very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, you're, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please go away. What have I ever done to you? I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the breath of the thing on his hand and his face. He said there, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for the rest of their lives and of all the dangers in Tashpan and about the night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him in the desert and about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how long it had been since he had eaten. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. What on earth do you mean? I just told you that there were at least two the first night. There was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion, and as Shasta gaped open with a mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. And I was the lion who gave the, king, the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that they should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. The picture of the lion is the picture of what God shepherds us like. And it may be painful at times, and there may be unexplained reasons at times, and there may be things that we don't understand, but the lion is always taking care of us. The lion is getting us where we need to go. The lion is taking us to a place where we learn to trust and rely on him. And the things that are painful and the things that are frustrating, the things that are hard to go through, he's in those as well. And he wants to give you a bigger picture of himself and a bigger picture of his love so that you only understand him as that. And you realize, hey, all of this might hurt, 
all of this might be hard to go through, but I know he's going to use it for me, and I know that ultimately he's going to wipe away all those tears. What we're going to do now is going to worship about that. We're going to respond, and we're going to celebrate that that's the God that we've been invited to a relationship with. But we also want to recognize that a lot of us are dealing with some stuff. So what we're going to do in this time of worship is we're also going to take time to pray, and some people are going to make themselves available for you to pray if you need that. Um, Because it's one thing to hear, you know, but this is a journey. It's a process. It's not something you can do on your own. You need people in your life. You need people praying for you, but you also need friends. You need mentors. You need people who can encourage you and steer you along the right path. And we want to start that with you with prayer, but we also want to get you plugged in somewhere where you can get the help that you need. And so just kind of the way this will work logistically, if everyone could stand on up and if my prayer people could go where they're going to go, and this just makes it easier for everyone to move around, um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you allow us to be frustrated with you. Thank you that you allow us to process hurts and pains and doubts and things like that, Lord, that you're not a God who expects us to not have those things, but that you desire us to heal those things, Lord. You desire to give us more of yourself that we might realize that all you have for us is love as seen in in the death of your son. Help us to know that on a heart level, Lord. Help us to know that it not just is the answer in our head, but as the answer on our heart that we live and respond out of. In your name, amen.